Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Gallagher Jr. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate all the support over the last two seasons. Special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. You can find Steve on steveazar.com. Don't forget to get your copy of Only One Shot by VJ Trolio, and that's available on Amazon. Today we have Mark Blackburn on the uh, podcast, one of the top instructors in America. Teaches players from all levels, from juniors to PGA Tour players, LPGA players. His uh, golf academy is over at Greystone, over in Birmingham, Alabama. Grew up in England, where he played all kinds of sports. Picked up golf kind of late, probably 13, 14 years old. Uh, Kept improving, worked his way over here to the States. Played at the University of Mobile. Later transferred to Southern Miss. Played a little bit of professional golf. Had some injuries, kind of kept him going. And he wanted to figure out why... He maybe didn't succeed as a professional and uh, got into the instruction side of it and now is one of the top 50 instructors in the game. So let's get uh, Mark Blackburn on the phone. All right, I got Mark Blackburn on the phone. He's a top 100 teacher, uh, instructor, teaches everybody of all levels, uh, grew up in England. Mark, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, with you, man. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about growing up in England, because you don't have a Alabama accent, as we'll hear as we continue on. So tell us about your uh, kind of junior days and how you got started playing the game. Yeah, so I grew up in Surrey, which is just basically south of London. So probably, I'd say about 11 miles as Big Ben um, is from where I grew up, to the crow flies. So I grew up, um, I played all sports as a kid, so I kind of came to golf late. So I've ever had a bat or a ball, I played it. So in England, you've got loads of racket sports. You've got squash, you've got tennis, you've got badminton, you've got cricket, and then obviously you've got sports like rugby, soccer. I used to swim, I did martial arts. So I kind of did all types of stuff. And my dad and my grandfather were like heavily into golf. And I really didn't, I kind of tinkered with golf, but to be honest, I didn't start playing golf till I was about 13 or 14. Really? Um, I'd had, an, had enough of being injured playing rugby, and I was kind of a late late golfer, if you like. And so when I got into it, I had the ability. I could hit the ball a long way, but it didn't look particularly straight. And anyone that's as old as me, uh, I had to hit a lot of three-woods because there wasn't any loft on the driver, and it didn't go very straight. So I hit lots of three-woods. Um, when I started... I kind of didn't have much instruction. The guy who was the head pro at our club, which is called Betcher Park, it's a cult design, same guy designed Walton Heath and Sunningdale and um, courses like Wentworth. So essentially, I um, had the head pro, and his name was Alex King, and believe it or not, he was the old school. He's a really good player. He's a Scottish guy. He actually finished 11th in the Open one time so he was a good player right and he was just this little old guy and he was very much kind of uh sort of just swing the club with good rhythm there was not really much technique it would just hit golf balls and at that stage we had a really good practice ground Mm -hmm. um so what i used to do um you shared your own golf balls driving ranges where you you know the balls are there waiting for you that doesn't exist in the uk so you um you shared your own golf balls. so what would happen is my dad would go play golf and I would go with him, but then I would go practice. And so I would just hit balls and volume of golf balls. And then I got into the junior ranks there at the club. And my first year, I kind of went from a 36 handicap to like an 18 or something. And then the next year, I uh, went down to about 10. 
And if anyone understands the UK handicap system, you actually have to count all your cards. It's not like your best average. Back mm-hmm. in the day, it's like every, every round counts. And then when I was probably about, I'd say, 15, there was a assistant professional that came to the club, and his name was Dan Wyborn. He now lives in Thailand. And he essentially kind of saw that I was always practicing, but he basically took me under his wing and started to like teach me I would trade out car washes and other stuff for like him helping me and I'd help him with clinics and whatever. And then I started to get a lot better. And then I think I got down to about four or five handicap in the next year or so. And then kind of essentially got to the point where I played a lot of junior events, but because of when I started playing golf and I was progressing pretty well, my downfall was that I was not in any of the like, advanced elite stuff so mm-hmm. i missed out on a lot of those coaching and i just played in like regional things but had gotten to the point where i was getting pretty good and a five handicap over there is about like a scratch or a plus here to be honest back back when it was so you could shoot anywhere from two or three under to two or three over it just depended and i kind of got this fear in my bonnet that i wanted to play college golf and one of my um fellow junior members named still meadows he was a really good player, played for England boys and stuff. Like, he was really, really good. His uncle, oh, sorry, his great-uncle was Charlie Ward, who was the guy who played on the uh, Ryder Cup, actually took Ben Hogan at the Ryder Cup to, um, I think Hogan won on the last hole. So, like, he came from a golf background. And uh, Phil was in America, and I was like, Circle Portis is about 17 or 18, and he had a scholarship, and so I was like, well, I want to go play golf in America. I got this idea that I wanted to play golf for a living. Um, obviously, that's fairly ambitious for someone who's not a scratch golfer. But long story short, I ended up getting a scholarship to school in Mobile, Alabama. I came to America in 1993, played in a golf tournament at Pine Needles. Uh, and I had a good-looking golf swing, but I had, and I hit it good. Couldn't play golf. I couldn't play dead in a Western relative to, like, good players, if that makes sense. I mean, I, it, looked, it looked really good. On a driving range, it looked good. As soon as I got on the golf course, I had my golf IQ from playing tactically and strategically was probably a two, and my ability to hit shots was probably a seven or an eight. So it just, and honestly, I couldn't, I putted very badly. So long story short, it I wasn't a great combo, but I managed to scrape round, I think, four, three or four, four rounds in the low 70s, and I got offered a scholarship. So I ended up going to school in Mobile and played at the University of Mobile. I, cho- I had some offers, but I chose that because of the weather in Mobile was great. It was the South, and I really liked the coach, Dr. Terry Hopper. He's a great dude, um, goofy but lovely. Um, still friends with him today. So I, I go to uh, the U.S., and... I probably had more fun than I should have done in Mobile, but I really enjoyed my time. And I saw that NAIA golf wasn't quite what I wanted to do. And I was getting there. And then my buddy Phil, who's at Southern Mississippi, which is um, in Hattiesburg, everybody knows, they actually were looking for some, to recruit some transfers. Long story short, Phil said I was there. I went to Hattiesburg, drove up from Mobile. Sam Hall saw me like me my golf IQ was now about a five my hitting was probably closer to an eight and uh, I ended up getting a spot and that's where I met VJ and uh, I played there for a few years I got better and better I was never like anything to the level of say VJ in college 
worked really hard, didn't have the right information. So looking back at it, my work ethic was probably a nine or a ten, but my, again, understanding these other things wasn't probably where it needed to be. And I had grown up in a culture, if you, late 90s, sort of, from a, if you like, led better Faldo era where it was very swing-centric. It mm-hmm. wasn't so much score-centric. And then I came to the States and all these kids, especially, you know, Mobile, not too much, but when I went to Southern Miss, the golf swings were really eclectic, but guys knew how to play golf and they knew, knew how to score. And so by the time I got to my senior year, I was getting a lot better. BJ had turned pro and we'd play a lot of grudge matches and we'd just play a lot of golf, a lot of volume of golf. There's an airport course in Mobile. Um, we used to play a lot of cane break. And I was starting to get pretty good. The technology was a little better then, and I was starting to hit it a long way. I also weighed about 225, 30 pounds at that point. So I had a lot of mass to go behind it. So I started to be able to play, shoot some low scores. And so I got this idea that I was going to turn pro. And then I found some sponsors, and I turned pro. And I played for a few years pretty inconsistently. But during that time... Um, I, I guess the sort of two major events were I started working with Phil McDonald, who was a golf machine guy in Atlanta, um, Accelerized Golf, and that really helped my golf game. And I started to get a lot better and started playing well in Hooters events. And it was an alternate for the US Open and a couple of times. I started to actually play pretty good golf. And at the same time, VJ had kind of gotten into the golf machine and he was helping me a little bit as well. So I kind of got this introduction, and then I got injured, and I had to kind of figure a way, or how am I going to fund what I'm doing? And so I actually started teaching in Gunnersville, and this is like 1999 in Gunners, a place called Gunners Landing, and that kind of how I started teaching. And from there, I kind of had this affinity for it. I liked it. Um, I seemed to be pretty competent at it. And I just started teaching a bunch of people and I eventually got healthy and tried to go back to play, but was not nearly as competent at the playing as I was at the teaching. And that's kind of how, that's a very Cliff Notes version, but um, it was really one of those things where my experiences and struggles from being a player and and the learning that went into that uh, was definitely probably what sent me down the path of, trying to understand what goes on and why I couldn't do this. And, and I think that's where I sort of gravitated to the teaching and the coaching and went to see lots of different people and get lots of different influences to understand why wasn't I successful. And really, the more I did that, I started to see such diverse sort of ideology, ideology amongst instructors uh, and what they were doing. And then the coolest part was having played on the Hooters tour with the likes of Chad Campbell and Heath Slocum, Bill Lundy, guys that were like, and went on to be really good players, Ryan Palmer, was I saw how they did it and it wasn't necessarily orthodox, but they had great ball control. They did, did really good things and they played the game well. And so I kind of paired up the playing part of the game, the more tactical, strategic, understanding the scoring part with the technical piece and that kind of blended into helping people and then I rolled into working with a lot of junior golfers and helping them play and, and juniors up there in North Alabama started to play well and they'd play well regionally and then AJGAs and SJGTs and then that would bring other people to me and then eventually I ended up you know those players go on to play college golf started helping kids that played in college 
kids would come up, you know, from the Alabama, Auburn, different schools, UAB, uh, and then it kind of eventually I got a few different breaks and I ended up work. First guy I coached on the PJ Tour was Steve Slocum in 2004. After about four years of teaching a lot of juniors, a lot of bad golfers, but just having a lot of eyeballs on lessons, and it's like anything, just like playing. I guess it was just the thirst to learn and to, to try and develop as a coach. And it was just from experience. And I was totally infatuated with it. Just like you are when you play golf, it was more, couldn't wait to help people. And I had a 30-minute golf lesson. It turned into a three-hour golf lesson. But the good thing was that was what stopped me from folding shirts and selling tees and stylists. So it was good I wasn't stuck inside. And that's kind of how, how it went. And here we are now. So it definitely, it started with a early in England and just trying to get better and learn and I kind of rolled that into whatever I do I'm probably all into as my wife says I tend to be a little bit OCD on things but um, I think I think that's one of the things that's a mark of anyone that's pretty good at something is they're all into it and so that's kind of the, that's how it started from Betchworth Park to uh, now I'm in Birmingham at Greystone and we get a great academy uh, super good facility and i got a team of six instructors, all of us together, and they're great, great coaches themselves, uh, all, coaching all levels, and we've got a great junior program. We teach complete beginners all the way through to, you know, i got a pretty good stable of four players these days, so it's really cool, and I still teach normal people. So uh, before we got on this podcast, I was doing some video lessons and teaching some of my slicers and hackers, and uh, so I teach beginners all the way through to the best players, the whole continuum, so not just a uh, tour coach. Yeah, that's a cool story because you and VJ Trollio, who you mentioned earlier, kind of mirror the same kind of path. Uh, you know, grew up, got better and better, went to Southern Miss. They learned a lot. Both of you learned from Sam Hall, just different aspects of it. And, and VJ, uh, golf machine, and, and just kind of tried to play professionally, wanted to figure out why he didn't succeed or what did, went wrong. And you both really kind of got into all that. I remember when I first went to take a lesson because my dad taught me my whole life was a PGA member club pro at the same place for 45 years and basically kept it pretty simple and went to VJ and he started talking golf machine and to my brain, which was a lot more simple. It was a little confusing, but I've learned more from VJ uh, about the golf swing. Cause when I played, I didn't want to know much about it. I just wanted my dad to say, Hey, do this. And I'd go do it. I had a hard time kind of overthinking I, I guess I was more natural than than uh, mechanical but when you look back at those other sports you played what benefit did they have for you and you mentioned playing all those sports I talked to more and more people it's beneficial to kids today to play all those sports growing up don't you think oh yeah 100 percent. so if you look at like long-term athletic development and you look at growth velocities and when certain windows of opportunity to train, whether it be strength, speed, agility, endurance. When those windows occur, if you're playing multiple sports, organically you're doing those things, right? Like it just happens. And I think the great thing about kicking, punching, striking, dribbling, the sports in the UK, right, that you tend to play. So if you take a look at badminton and squash and tennis and cricket, that's all wrist angle stuff. So Mm -hmm. that's your hand-eye coordination, bat and ball to hit the ball. That's extremely important in golf. And then when you look at soccer and rugby and basketball and these other games that involve your lower body as moving and changing direction, there's your agility, there's your disassociation. And obviously that's also 
going to influence your ability to generate speed. So there's the body part of it. So I think all of those sports that I, I know without question, especially this has changed too for the 20 plus years. Juniors that were junior lessons had tried everything else and they weren't particularly athletic. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were working with kids that didn't generate a lot of speed. They were just like trying golf because they tried everything else and everybody assumed that they weren't very athletic and needed to play golf. And the reality was they struggled with it and it was difficult. There was a much longer learning curve for them because they hadn't got all those other sports. They didn't have the engrams built up. They didn't have that myelin. All those things that are necessary we now know to be able to pick up something and be able to adapt. Now, the kids that came and played other sports, quarterbacks, pitchers, they gravitated to it really quickly. Well, circle forwards now, we understand how significant that athletic development is in those fundamental movement skills, which we teach in all of our classes here. We have one going on right now as we're speaking here on Saturday morning, our Saturday sports class, where we teach all that and we're trying to get kids to be better athletes or working on their athleticism so that they've got that movement and understanding so that when it comes for us to coach them, some of these movements for golf, it's really, really easy. That's what DJ's got one of the best programs probably on the planet that he's got over there uh, in Mississippi that nobody knows about. And if you just look at his kid, which is incredible. So those are the things that we now know that we didn't know. And I think me growing up, playing all those sports, I alluded to the fact that I could hit the ball a long way that was because I knew how to move and I could generate speed. That was because of all those sports that I played, the bat and ball sports, my ability to, you know, change direction and do things. And I think, as I tell everybody, and I, I, I kind of cringe, my son plays different sports. He does martial arts, he's a black belt, but he does um, lacrosse and these other sports. And these parents are all think that their kids are going to be world beaters. And I'm like, Listen, I need you to play as many of these sports. You try to specialize, it doesn't make any sense. Play mm-hmm. everything you can so that you're a rounded athlete and the better athlete you are, the easier all these other things are going to be. And if you look at golf, golf is a older sport. If you look at the best players, yes, they're getting younger, but they're 20, 21, 22, 23, all the way, you know, arguably people really are in their prime as an average until their 30s, right? So there's a long time to play golf. But it's the better you are as a coordinated athlete, the easier golf is. And especially now when people are pushing, you know, 135, 140-mile-an-hour clubhead speeds, you've got to be an athlete to mm-hmm. do that. So I, I, I'm like, the game has changed and evolved. The better you can move, the better you're going to be able to move the club. And it's as simple as that. There will always be anomalies because golf is such a cerebral game where there's going to be some people who aren't particularly athletic, who learn to play the game, and just they're really good. But as a whole, if you look at where the game's going, the better athlete, the better you're going to be as a player. And I, all the coaches, the players, excuse me, I talk to on the PGA Tour and the guys I coach, they all have very similar backgrounds. They play lots of different sports. There's not many of them that are just complete what I would call golf fanatics, and that's all they've ever done. Yeah, that's that's true, because I talked to Brian Henniger, who played on tour. He's teaching out in Oregon. He said the same thing. The kids that come in who played other sports are phenomenal, uh, and those are the ones that pick it up quicker. And you mentioned working with uh, different levels of, of players and everything and, and, and players on the PGA Tour. Uh, say you've got a kid that's a pretty good player, getting better. He's in high school. 
What advice do you have them trying to get them ready and prepare them to go into maybe playing college golf? So obviously, everything is about how you score. I think that the, these days, people kind of lose sight. Score is, is all that matters when it comes to golf. So the recipe for your scoring could be very, very different depending on what the skills are of the player. So I'm, I obviously want them to be able to play in tournaments, but it's then to embrace and understand what they need to do to score and what's necessary from a optimization of their own game. Like, I'm big on trying make your game about what you do well and build it around the strengths that you have, whether it's at the short end of the bag with chipping and putting or whether it's a long end of the bag with driving, right? So, or is it a blend of, a blend of each? And when someone goes to college, most of the time everybody sees, you know, these really, really phenomenal college players, the likes of Matt Wolf, and these ridiculously low rounds they all shoot. And I tell everybody, look, college golf is an experience to understand how to travel, how to to balance some different things to multitask. So you've got to figure out what works for you. And at the end of the day, if you can keep your scoring around par and understand that and be able to grind it out, you're going to be a really big contributor to a, to a college program. So I always try and explain to people that embrace the sort of scoring aspect of it. Understand what you need to do and focus on that. Don't get distracted by trying to do something you're not. And a lot of clients seem to do that. We obviously have lots of different juniors here, and there's going to be some that are exceptional, that are great at everything, but I always try and look at what's the nucleus of somebody's game. You need to make that strength and maintain it and then chip away at the other things. A lot of times people try and be something they're not, and then they, they lose their strength, and I think that becomes difficult. And so for me, when it's a junior, I want them to play lots of tournaments. I want them to get experience, but I also want them to understand you know, how do they build a score? What's work, what works for them? What's their unique recipe to play the game? And then embrace that and kind of look at it. Some people are knockout Mike Tyson boxers, and some people are Evander Holyfield, where they just, I mean, excuse me, Floyd Mayweather, where they just jab away at people and they win, you know, on points at the end and just the cumulative effect of it. You just got to figure out which sort of goal for you are, and, and that sort of is uh, definitely what we try and embrace with our kids and our juniors, and, and honestly, every player we coach. All right, let's talk about that elite player and separates the average. What? How does that? Uh, how do you define separating the elite from the average? So I, I think to your point earlier, you alluded to it. Your dad would just kind of nudge you along, and it wasn't overly technical, and you could just do it. And I think that the better the elite player, you give them. Not, they don't need as much information. They're able to do things a lot more quickly. They come up with solutions. They're very, if you like, self-regulated. They work harder. They do things intrinsically. They just come up with solutions, ideas, concepts that are really pretty profound and wise beyond their years. And, and I think, especially at the junior level, their they're understanding, they just have these sort of intrinsic things that you can't teach. And I've found that the best truly elite I'm guiding them. They're doing it. It's it's one of those things where they do a lot with a little bit. When they get, they don't ever get technical, and they're able to execute. Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant looking at the rim, they just yeah, they don't want to have too many thoughts. They just want to be able to go play and compete, and that's something that you really you struggle to. You try and get players to that point but it's really hard 
to make somebody just think like that. But the ones that are really good and elite, that's how they think. They're competitors. They want to play. They're more about the competition and the ability to perform than they are about how they're doing it. Yeah, that's what I hear from so many athletes. I've had uh, Archie Manning on the podcast. I've had all the golfers, instructors, and you know, top players from the past and present, and that's exactly what they say. It's intangibles. It's work ethic. It's something, that grit inside, and, and they got to have somebody guide them. But there's just that's what – you know, the will to win, uh, desire to be great. I think that separates the elite. But you mentioned technology, fitness. Uh, everybody's trying to hit it further. How do you keep up with all the new technologies? I was just over at VJ's. He's got some kind of balance uh, board thing that he's got now that he's have players hitting off of. I mean, the technology is amazing and expensive. Uh, that's the thing that they don't realize when they go to guys like you and, and you know, you charge what you charge. But the investment you all put into it, I talked to John Tillery about it. Uh, Scott Hamilton. I mean, the investment the, that you guys put into equipment and everything's unbelievable. Uh, but how do you keep up with all that? Yeah, so it's one of those things where I guess what you can measure, right? So we want to give objective information to our players. Um, I think that as a coach, you want to be able to understand what goes on. My wife makes fun of me because her swimming pool and outdoor um, sort of summer stuff is actually all sits inside my teaching center because that's where I've spent all my money, not on her yard. <laughs> but it's essential if you're coaching the best players. I mean, I'm sitting in a bay here. I've got AMTI force plates. I've got a GBD 3D system. I've got two computers. I've got like six screens in here. Like It's a lot of money. But again, when you're coaching the best players, you want the ability to get information and that's the same for... You know, our juniors, we have three bays here. They're all equipped with force pressure, video cameras, track mans, quads, just because we want to give our students the best information. And I don't want to be guessing. Like, when I grew up, you grew up playing golf, we didn't know. We just reacted to the golf ball, which is really important. And the golf ball really doesn't lie that much, to be honest, unless you're with a driver and there's a bit of gear effect. But to be honest, you know when you hit it in the middle of the club face, generally doesn't lie, but the technology just allows us to expedite the learning curve. I tell everybody technology and feedback is as much for the student as it is for the coach because it allows them to feel, see, and do, and not everybody is that elite player. To DJ's point in the book, most people are average. If you're average, you need a lot mm-hmm. of help. You need ways to understand, feel, see, do. We know so much more about motor learning, and the technology is just a great medium to communicate. It makes communication better. If you look historically, golf was always taught the way that you were taught. So if you look at instructors, they're very much the heritage of, hey, if I'm a this guy or I'm a that guy, you heard it this way and you taught it the way you were interpreted and were taught it and it would go down and things would be very much, people would be disciples of a method. We don't really have that now because we have a lot more objectivity about what goes on and how people do things. And that's the technology. And yes, it's expensive, but it's no different. I tell everyone, we are practicing goal construction, just like we're practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. You would rather get surgery today than you would 30 years ago. The same thing in golf construction. Now, the downfall of the technology is a coach has to be the interpreter of the information and communicate it. Technology can be cumbersome and it can... In, inhibit the learning, but if it's used correctly and the instructor knows what they're doing, I think it's fantastic and it really helps people. Well, I think that's a great point because I see a lot of 
uh, people who maybe don't have the background. I wouldn't have that background with when you just had uh, launch monitors and TrackMan and those things, but now you've increased it in the putting labs, the SAM and all those things. If you don't know what you're doing, you could mess up somebody pretty quickly. So uh, it's like you said, I think it's good for the instructor as much as anything, but the student has to understand uh, and they have to have that instructor that truly understands that. But you mentioned you, you teach players of all levels and, and you travel so much. How do you juggle all that and keep, uh, you know, like you said, your wife and family life together. How do you balance that uh, being gone so much and, and teaching so many different peoples at different levels? Yeah, I, I, honestly, when you love something and you're passionate about it, I mean, I just enjoy teaching mm -hmm. and it's extre extremely fulfilling. I've always had a healthy paranoia that if I'm not teaching, I'm not getting better. And if I'm teaching the best players, I need to be getting better so I have the best information. And I think it's one of those things where... Um, when I started, if we had children late, um, so we got three kids, twins, boy, girl, and, and a younger daughter. And my wife and I, obviously, she encouraged me early on to be able to go travel and do things. And I kind of fell into, to be honest, the, the tour thing. And I, it, it had success and it got wheels and I, I didn't have kids. And I had a situation where I was able to travel and the clubs I've been at, I've always wanted me to do that. And Greystone here in Birmingham is fantastic. And building a team really facilitates and allows me the opportunity to travel. So obviously we have a kind of pretty agnostic coaching philosophy here. But So every, every instructor has a framework, but they also have the ability to teach their own unique way. And because we have five other coaches, we can accommodate lots of players. So we've, we've, I have a team that works hard. The academy's running when I'm not here. So I generally, when I'm traveling, I'm, I'm out, you know, either the whole week or I, I come back for the weekend and then I teach. And then Sundays is a family day. I'm either, it's football season, we're watching the Saints um, or, you know, we're, we're doing something together. So I tend to probably be on the workaholic side, but most of us golf pros are. And it's really based on I love what I do and I'm always trying to learn, Jim. And if I don't teach somebody and I'm not teaching, I feel like I'm not refining my skills. And it just, I like what I do, so I don't really see it as work. Just like, you know, you playing golf, you, you don't see it as work. And I think anything that's associated with it, whether it's presenting and coaching around the world for different sort of organizations, academies, federations, whatever it be, or whether it's coaching tour players or whether it's out with our juniors or whether it's doing a member clinic, or whether it's doing online lessons. You know, I just, I'm a golfaholic, I guess. And it's just one of those things when you know that you got some information that can help people you just you just want to help people so if i see someone struggling it's all i can do to keep my mouth shut most of the time because you want to help yeah them. that's so it's one of those things it's, a, it's just difficult when you see yeah, it's interesting because I, I was just saw VJ. He's teaching on Mondays now, uh, but he loves it. My dad loved it, uh, and that's true because if you don't love it, you're not going to be able to do what you do, and, and, and you want to see people get better. I think that's why VJ loved the full swing is he saw a little bit more improvement where were you working on the short game putting, as Tim Yelverton does, that you don't quite see that instant success with that. I mean, it's there but not like in the golf swing. Like you mentioned, you went from a high handicap, you cut it in half and you cut it in half in two years. And I, I think that's why VJ loves it. And, and it's fun to watch you guys who, who truly love it and, and the passion uh, for it. And, 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 you know, like my dad loved to teach, uh, but he didn't have the technology. I mean, we didn't, I didn't see my golf swing on, on film or on camera until I was in college. Uh, so you're right. I, I think mm. that, 
not hindered us, uh, but it kept us from being able to improve as quick as some of the, the modern players. Uh, but I, I'm just always amazed at how smart you guys are. And, and, and I always, if I ask a question, I'll either, I'll, I'll text John Tillery and say, put it down so I understand it, dumb it down so I understand it. Uh, and he calls it the redneck version, but it, it's just fun to, uh, to talk with you guys and get, pick your brains and, and just watch how you've watched players improve. Uh, but what's a typical week for you? And will this be kind of our last question? Cause I know you got a lot going on. What's a typical week on tour and balancing all the multiple players you have? What's a, a week like that for you out on the PGA tour? Yeah. So I think every week after a tournament, you're trying to have recap with players. Monday is usually a recap day. So I'm either traveling on a Sunday or a Monday, but I'm communicating with those guys. They generally take Mondays off. Um, and it's the same with the LPGA girls, but you're, you're essentially kind of, if you like, debriefing the week before. You look at the stats. The great thing now, especially on the PJ Tour, is you've got strokes game. So I have a uh, an objective look at actually how they played. Remember, everybody's highly subjective about what they did, but the stats are great. So we're going to review that. And Tuesday's generally going to be a day where we've got to, we know where they, their issues are. Want to make sure that they're doing all the things right. Tuesday's about the most technical day. Probably if there's an issue, we're going to work on that. And then um, we'll play the golf course nine holes typically. Some of my guys will play together. If depending on who's playing, that just means they get more time with me observing on the golf course. At the end of the day, the goal every week is to be able to figure out how to play the golf course in the best way possible for each player. And back to what we talked about earlier, that recipe is going to be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, just trying to figure that out. Wednesday's a pro-am day, so we do the warm-up. Um, probably tend to do some wedge work on Wednesday. Usually a light day. They're nine-hole pro-am most of the time now. And then it's just getting them rested. And then Thursday, first round, Friday, you know, I warm them up. And then I'm on the golf course observing. If, I'm, uh, if they're in different ways, whatever, I'm just there all day. So I'm doing warm-ups. I'm then doing cool-downs after they play anything they want to work on based on the round or anything they see, then we go into the next day. And that really rolls around for the, the four days you're there. I would say a lot of tournaments I leave, I watch the first two rounds, get them through the cut, and then they're on their own for the weekend and I leave. Uh, big events, majors, a lot of times they want you to stay there, so you're there the whole week. So it just depends. And then it, sometimes I may only be there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It really depends on, on the situation. But I would say you're traveling sometimes three weeks a month doing that and it's just because you're trying to be there from I always think there's a lot of features but coaching involves seeing people play the mm-hmm. game do they stick to their strategy to their strategy does their rhythm change what do they do on the golf course how do they react what's their body language are they doing the things necessary to optimize their scoring all these little things that contribute and compound towards their scoring that's a lot more of the coaching which you really do on the road on the PGA Tour, how do you? What, how are they when they get out on the range in the morning? What's their attitude like? Are you trying to pump them up? Are you trying to calm them down? Those those type of things. The actual true teaching and acting and those generally happens here at Greystone or at their club in the, you know away from a tournament where you can be more invasive. You're not worried about the consequence. They're not trying to score. Whereas at a golf tournament, everything is. Does it make them score better? Does it make the boat go faster? And I think people mis- misunderstand that. It's not all of X's and O's and technical at tournaments that you're doing at the beginning of the week. As the week goes on, it's a lot more about getting them in the mindset to play golf, to play the golf course well, 
to know that they have their A, B, or C game, and then how do they manage that? Those are the that we're, we're well, on. that's a great way to end it, and that's a great qu- answer to the question. I remember working with Dr. Coop, and, and we did the things you said earlier in the week, but I said, I want you to watch me play because I can't, you know, it, it, yeah, practice rounds, I'm a little more loose, but I'm not trying to – the shot's not as important. So he would observe me, watch me play, and he did that with all his players, and that was such a big help for me. And and but I appreciate you spending some time with us and and I know you're a busy guy, one of the busiest guys I know, and, and it's good to get to to have you on the podcast. But I always kinda end it with this, whether in life or golf, you have uh you may have only one shot and you gotta make it count. You're making it count with a lot of players and uh we appreciate you, Mark, being on there, appreciate your friendship, uh, and a lot of great uh, information today. You got it, Jim. Thanks so much. I wish everyone a happy and safe twenty twenty one and look forward to us all being post COVID and back where we can shake hands and hug absolutely (laughs) let's get back to normal whatever the normal is all right buddy thanks for being on got it man